Welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where I apparently don't post for a month or so and then just throw something out there. So hopefully you're all hanging in there with me. I still feel like I have a lot of things to say, but you know how life gets in the way. This is still a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective, and I'm your host, Hallie Harris. This is an interview that I did about a month ago with an amazing woman in the community. She is a volunteer manager for a local hospice. She has her own podcast called Being in Possibility, and she also is involved with the We Ignite Women's Organization. So please go check her out. And in the meantime, here is our interview. Remembering what book you're telling me to read. What is it called? Yeah, it's called The Four Pivots. And it's written by a professor of sociology uh, who's a black man and just talking about the chapter I was just listening to this morning was talking about this. Um, it, it was so speaking to me about hospice. It was like, you know, we're well, and I think hospice is better than most, but talking about organizations and how we're like, oh, we want to make this change, whatever the change is, but we want to make this change. And um, to make this change, you need to be different and you need to be different and the community needs to be different and this business needs to be different. And then, then that change will happen. And that that is never effective. Like <laughs> every two years, five years, 10 years, whatever, we're having the same exact conversation. And so he was just reflecting that to make any kind of change organizationally within your family, that the first place to look is, okay, well, what do I need to do to change? What's that? And he calls it like the the mirror effect is um, when you're looking in the mirror, what are the things that you can do to impact the change that you're looking for? And um, it was just really interesting because I just kept thinking, and it's this mirror, but it's also reflection. And we spend so much time on planning and strategizing and, and um, looking forward that we rarely reflect back on where we were and what we've done and what we're hoping to accomplish. And that was really, um, I don't know, that just really like sat with me that all morning is like, oh my gosh, okay. Yeah, there's, and most organizations don't build in reflection time. And so then I was really grateful working at, with hospice right now, because I don't know if it's a hospice thing or if it's our hospice thing that we do spend a lot of time reflecting on um, those folks that we've served, reflecting on how interacting with them has impacted us as professionals and humans. Anyway, it was just really, it was really interesting. So I have enjoyed it so far and I'm only that far in just like you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like that's probably just our hospice. Uh, and also it is indicative of the kind of work you're doing with your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is. And it, yeah, it, it was really interesting this morning. So I was, I was crocheting and uh, this baby blanket that I've been trying to make since before the baby was born, she's almost six months old. And <laughs> yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Oh, funny. Oh my gosh, Hallie, I am so excited. We have been talking about this for so long, ever since you stopped by my office one day and said, I'm going to start a podcast. And I have been <laughs> so excited for you. And I thought if I ever start a podcast, I want to interview Hallie Harris. And I am so grateful to have you here this morning to spend time with you. And for those of you who don't know Hallie, which it's highly recommended, by the way, 
Uh, Hallie is a social worker for a locally owned hospice. She is an army veteran and a passionate advocate for justice and an open book, apparently, <laughs> which I have known about her for a while. Um, yeah. What are you, what are you up to? What's your podcast about? What are the, who are the people you're meeting? What's going on in your life? Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me, Erin. I am privileged to know you as well. So people that don't know you should also get to know you. Uh, I, of course, hospice is my life at this moment. We have been pretty busy. And so most of the things have gone to the wayside, uh, frankly, but that's, that's kind of calming down. And uh, being a social worker is also my passion. So that goes right in, in hand in hand with the justice piece. <clears throat> I'm sure that's why I became a social worker. Uh, so I'm also, as you said, hosting my own podcast. It is called Someday We'll All Be Dead, apropos for hospice work, but that is not the only thing I talk about. I do definitely get into some realms of hospice and specific things with hospice and social work and death and dying. Um, specifically, my last podcast, which I'm super happy about, I got to interview the host of the podcast, The Adventures of Memento Mori. And he very specifically talks about death and dying in various different aspects. It is a fabulous podcast, highly recommend. But if you want to get just a flavor of D.S. Moss, um, that is his name. He is on the last podcast that I did, which was, I think, at the end of February now. Um, and he's fabulous. So that is, I'm trying to get that back up and running. I had that going um, for a couple of years every other week, and that has slid down to kind of once a month, unfortunately. So uh, I'm not giving up on it. I, I still have a lot of things to say, as you know, I have a lot of things to say about everything, um, but I, I need to get that back up and running. And then uh, just really trying to maintain a positive mental attitude, frankly. I think we all can kind of get behind that right now. Uh, I recently talked to my therapist about uh, MPS plug for therapy. Everyone should be in therapy. Um, <laughs> Heck yes. Yeah. Uh, I spoke to her about like, why am I having such a hard time now? Like, why does this feel harder than when the pandemic started? Why is everything harder right now when it doesn't seem like it's anything worse than we've been through already? And she really put into perspective for me the level of resilience that we have, kind of like the old adage about not being able to pour into a cup from an empty pitcher, that our resilience was really high before the pandemic. And things have just piled on and piled on and piled on, and we really haven't had a chance to build that back up. So now when new things happen, your resilience is already at a low. So you really have no tolerance for, for anything more. And that really resonated with me and particularly in hospice right now. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, that's so interesting. That's something that I've been thinking a lot about recently is um, we have been at it for so long and it's almost like, okay, we're expecting the next wave. We're expecting this next piece. We're expecting this next piece. And I just keep coming to what's going to happen when I don't want to say like COVID is gone because I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think it's going to be here and just integrate itself into our global society. Yeah. Um, but what's going to happen when this like intense fear of transmission of the virus is gone? 
much like yeah. when there's um, an emergency situation and there are those people who spring to action, who know how to handle themselves in an emergency and do all of that work. And then it's later that you fall apart. It's later that you go home and you're like exhausted and you can't move and your, you know, tears flow when you look at a kitty cat, you know, <laughs> yes. Or uh, I was going to say a Hallmark commercial, but I don't actually have commercials on TV anymore. So, you know, those don't affect me as much. Um, I just keep getting to that point. Like what, what are the consequences going to be of the fact that we have had this, what, two and a half years now of like intense emergency? Mm -hmm. um, what's that going to look like for all these folks who have been able to had these stores of resilience, like you said, and, and what do we need to do to like head this off or um, not prevent it, but like support the people that then are going to continue to need this additional support. I don't know yeah. if there's an answer there, but yeah, what do you, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, as you're speaking, I'm just thinking about, you know, this isn't the first time the world has been through a situation like this and the plague in 1918 was you know, just as long, it went on for a couple of years. We've been through various iterations of this throughout human history. And I think right now, because of the good and bad of technology, we are more connected than ever. You know, there's, there's cost to that. And it's not always great to be connected in that way, but it also provides a level of support for people that feel more isolated or aren't able to get out into the world. You know, I'm thinking about the disability community or people with neurodivergence and things like that. So I really, I, I want to be more optimistic about things. And that's part of my um, goal to be more mentally positive is, and a little less cynical, um, is really that there, there is a lot more good and hope in the world than sometimes I feel like there is. Yeah, well, and uh, good and hope doesn't make for good news, does it? You know, news is always, um, what's the worst thing that can happen? What's the worst case scenario? What's the crisis that's occurring? Um, I've never quite figured out why. <laughs> I mean, I really think that's just human nature. We all stare at a car wreck when we drive by, right? It's, it's the thing we can't look away from. It's the same reason that there's a phenomenon of obsession with true crime and serial killers, right? It's, it's not the standard. It's not what we see every day. It's hard to explain and we want to have some control in our life. So when we're thinking about things that we don't have control over, we want to figure it out. Now, Tears of My Enemy mug is probably not the best advertisement for me trying to be positive. But you have tea, you have tea in it and your tea has like a lovely saying, I'm sure. <laughs> a <laughs> well, lovely positive saying. It is a mint tea, so. Um, yeah, it's a cold brew mint tea, actually. Southern mm. Breeze mint tea. It's very good. Sounds delicious. Um, yeah. So what's like, what do you want to, there's so many options to talk about here. I mean, <laughs> I just, seriously, like just the three things that you said, the locally owned hospice, the army veteran and a passionate advocate for justice, um, right this moment in the world there are like millions of topics we could talk about, but what are the ones that are bubbling up for you? What are things that you're like, hmm, I wish I got to talk about this more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, uh, you know, you did give me some questions to prepare. So I have some answers that I was ready to talk about. I think maybe skipping down to the um, to answer that question, what impact do I want to have on the world? That's what that makes me think of because what's important to me right now really is three threefold, I guess, four, fourfold. Um, normalizing talk about death and dying. Obviously, that's in my host hospice work. That's in social work. Um, that's in justice and compassion and making things better for people, both living and dying. <clears throat> so that's number one. Um, as I showed you as we started this, I'm reading this Good Grief, uh, Finding Peace After a Pet Loss book because I focus on pet loss for the bereavement program of our hospice. So I want to normalize and reduce the stigma of the grief of pet loss. Um, normalizing apologies. I talk about that in the last podcast that I had a little bit with DS Moss about how important it really is for us as a society to just be okay with not being right all the time which I also personally struggle with, you know, but I also am not afraid to apologize when I'm wrong because, hey, you know what? You're right. I'm silly. We're wrong. Let's move on. There's no way to move past the conflict if you can't admit your own wrongdoing. So um, normalizing that and then elevating um, and getting to know more the voices of the BIPOC community, indigenous, queer community, all of that. I have been doing a lot of work and it sounds silly, but really a lot of it has been on TikTok <laughs> because that's where I'm finding these platforms of people giving free education and their time and their efforts and telling their personal stories. And so, um, yeah, that's really what my focus is right now. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> again, so many things, but one that really jumped out at me and it's the conversation around apology. Um, and in a lot of the work that I am doing outside of our local hospice is really supporting women um, and often other marginalized voices in um, being heard. Mm -hmm. And so frequently in, in, in this work, I tend to observe people when they're speaking. And so frequently I notice um, in particular, in just about any meeting that I facilitate for other women that are speaking, and I even find myself doing it sometimes, we'll do an the advent of Zoom meetings, I think brought this to the forefront, <laughs> is you, it, it, there's a couple extra seconds because you're trying to figure out what button to click, or you've gone to the wrong screen, or you've lost the screen entirely, and we apologize. Oh, I'm so sorry. So sorry. So sorry. And what do you see as the difference? Because to me, that's um, almost like we are taking away our own power. We're apologizing for our presence. We're apologizing for what we deem a lack of skill or not knowing how things work, or we're apologizing for um, inconveniencing the other people in the room. What do you see as the difference between that, which I really see as disempowering, and mm -hmm. what you talked about is owning this fact that we're not always right, which I heard is really empowering. And yeah, what do you? Yeah, do you I think that? that is a great way to delineate that. Exactly. I don't 
encourage people to apologize for their presence. Absolutely. I think you you really hit the nail on the head explaining the difference of the of that. What I see as the importance and empowering of apologizing is more <clears throat> taking ownership of the things we don't know, not apologizing because we don't know them, but apologizing if we've done something inadvertently that has hurt someone else um, because we're growing, not in the vein of, oh, I did something wrong, I should be ashamed. In the vein of, I recognize I did something, I'm going to take responsibility and ownership for it and move forward. I don't think there's a way to move forward without acknowledgement of a wrongdoing in a lot of different cases. And also that apology doesn't have to mean you're bad or you're, you should be ashamed. So I think there's a perspective switch in the way that you're apologizing. Um, you're giving great examples of why people, especially women, uh, apologize frequently um, just out of habit and just to be in a space, which I am, I'm not that woman. <laughs> well, and it's I so see funny. It a lot. I see it a lot. Yeah. And it's so funny because it was something that I had worked on for years and years and years. And with the Zoom technologies and trying to literally facilitate a meeting where you've got four screens open and you're trying to make everything work. And I find myself, I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Why am I, why have I said, I'm sorry, 15 times in the last 30 seconds. And then I, then I try not to, and then I'm having like this internal battle and then I click the wrong screen anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think at that point, hell? we're really looking at apologizing because we feel like we're wasting the other people's time and that devalues your own time that devalues mm -hmm. your own efforts and your own control and you know reason for being <laughs> you should yeah. be you have just as much a right to be there and be participating and to make mistakes it is okay to make mistakes i think we need to normalize that yeah yeah there is this huge generalized um anxiety around making a mistake or or this um like everything should be perfect. And if I'm not perfect, then I'm a fuck up basically. Like there's I mean, only two options. Struggle. Yes. <laughs> well, I, 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 that resonates with me very much. <laughs> yeah. That that's a, and I don't think that's particular to, you know, what people might call type A's or whatever. Everyone struggles with that. Everyone wants to be good at something or be thought of as productive or meaningful or valued. And I think that's a human experience. Yeah. Um, the last guest that I interviewed on the podcast, Julie Blazik, uh, and she didn't mention it in this podcast, but one of her other um, presentations, she, and I told her, I said, thank you so much for giving me this because I use it. I pops into my head frequently. And she had said their, their um, perfection and excellence are not the same thing. And right. you can be excellent without being perfect and you can be perfect without being excellent. And I just thought, Ooh, I really want to be excellent more than perfect. Um, I just had really appreciated that, um, that fr thought from her. So I would anyway, like to yes. And that, <laughs> yeah, please. Yes. And that, and I really try to stay away from yes, but because I think that's, 
that's trying to be perfect <laughs> or trying to override your thoughts with, you know, as if something else can't exist in the same uh, experience. I would like to suggest that perfection doesn't really exist. We may strive to be perfect. We may complete tasks perfectly, but in the same vein of there being a thought of perfection, that means there's no room for imperfection. Yeah, or anywhere to go once you're there. Right, right. And 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 at what point in time, and this is probably a wormhole that we could go into and <laughs> get sucked into a black hole, um, out in the universe, um, who created perfection? Mm. And what is perfect? And with like how many billions of people on this planet, how many versions of perfect are there? It's unattainable. It's unobtainable. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, maybe pets are perfect because <laughs> they don't come with, you know, human emotions like shame and guilt and things like that. Yeah. Um, that's actually a great transition because I, one of the things that I think I have always so deeply appreciated about you is this conversation around pet loss and your description um, is that often, and this is what I tell people when I'm talking about our pet loss programs <laughs> and how often people, when they lose humans, they lose their parents or their siblings or their spouse or their children and they they grieve um for the time that appears socially acceptable and then that's a whole that, other wormhole <laughs> that is a whole other wormhole um but that that grief is still there and often it is the pets in our lives the cats the dogs the horses the llamas the iguanas the koi fish the whoever <laughs> Um, that we're able to channel some of that energy um, in that of that grief into. And then when that animal dies, then it's all of those human losses. And it could be deaths, it could be job loss, it could be divorce, it could be loss of any kind, but it's wrapped up in that animal. Yes. And so when someone's cat dies and they completely can't come to work for the next month and can't even think about getting out of bed. It's not about the cat. I mean, it might yeah. be a little bit, but yeah. 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 I, I talk about this at nauseum to anyone that will listen. Uh, and and <laughs> I'm giving I've, you a platform. <laughs> and what I, and I've always teased that I should write a book about it, but frankly, it really should just be a chapter in a more comprehensive book like this. Um, it is really that uh, exactly what you're saying that the people that have come to me for first of all pet loss is disenfranchised already so already you've got probably the majority of the population saying things like it's just an animal or you could just go get another one as if you could just get another child or something you know people that are grieving their pets in that way it is a family member and it is a significant loss um and the ones that have come to me without fail so far that I've experienced, as I've talked them through what's going on, why do they feel like this is, as you say, longer than a 
<laughs> societally accepted time frame for grieving, which is ridiculous. Um, every single time there has been some sort of significant trauma or loss during the life of that pet. And that has compounded their grief to the point of it all coming flooding back. So uh, and this could happen. It doesn't have to just be the pet. But what I find is because they're focused on the pet, the loss of the pet themselves, they're not thinking back of everything that that pet has supported them through and been there for them during the life that they've had. So people that have transitioned from a marriage or a job or a place that they've lived or a loss of a loved one, they have gone through that transition. And now when that pet is gone, flooding back, everything comes flooding back. It opens that kind of traumatic parasympathetic nervous system that you're not even conscious of really until you start talking through, okay, let's look at the life of that pet. What happened in your life? Let's make a time frame. Much like the uh, grief recovery method, which is great that uh, our bereavement program works with. Make a time frame of the life of that pet and tell me what's happened in your life that didn't have to do with the pet. And like I said, without fail, something significant has happened and that trauma is now being brought back up. Prime example and how this kind of all came about in my brain was I lost my father when just before I was 10 years old, uh, brain cancer. I did not cry. Now, 10 years old is that kind of in-between phase where you're not quite to the abstracting, but <clears throat> you know what's going on. And my family was very open with me about everything and I knew what was happening, but it did not affect me until two years later when my dog who had been with me through my life had to be euthanized mm -hmm. and I bawled for a week. Now, obviously the dog was a big part of my life. He, I teased on that dog, that dog had been there. So obviously I was also missing the dog, but the dog was old. The dog had had a good life. The dog way outlived its expectation. This is a great Dane mix that lived to be 13. And also that dog represented the loss of my father and I could not stop crying. So I say that to say, if you're experiencing a pet loss that seems a little more extreme, a little more destructive, a little more debilitating, look back on the pet, of, the life of that pet and see what's up, what else has happened in your life that you might be reminded of. Yeah, I love that. Um, if we... So I'm going to yes and you. <laughs> please, please do it. I love it. What I hear in this sort of circles back to like this initial conversation we were having about this, like our, um, our resilience uh, stores mm -hmm. and um, even looking over, okay, like what's happened in the last 25 months? Mm-hmm. Aside from the trauma of the pandemic, which is huge, but what else has happened? What are the other things that we've lost? And, and is society, is society telling us that those things are insignificant? The fact that, you know, we had looked forward to um, having weddings or having baby showers or having uh, our mom with us at the hospital when we had a baby or 
um, you know, being able to have a funeral to bury our grandmother who passed or, I mean, all each one of those things pre-pandemic <laughs> probably would have been markered as a really massive loss in our life. Like sure. it was un- inconceivable that we couldn't have a funeral to bury our loved ones. Um, and then for the last two and a half years, we haven't been able to do that. Or, you know, the fact that our kids haven't been able to be in schools or we're in at work, we're not even able to have human interaction oftentimes where we're like people in the same room together. Uh Um, And people have, you mentioned, you know, losing jobs or I love that, like transitioning in a marriage, like could be going into one, could be leaving one, could be, you know, just like the shift that is occurring in it or other relationships. Yeah. Um, like tracking that, like, no, <laughs> sorry, I lost myself, but I'm just thinking, well, no wonder we're all grieving right now because, yes. <laughs> <laughs> because you, I mean, you like pointed that out, like, okay, draw this line here to here, start of a relationship, end of relationship. What are the tick marks on that line? that are wrapped up into that relationship Mm -hmm. and I'm almost thinking like what are the tick marks on this line that are wrapped up into this pandemic yes and (laughs) yeah and like yeah oh my god I mean we are going to grieve the end of this pandemic and all of the shit that's happened in in here each and every tick mark that's occurred um And what are those, like when we process grief, like what are the things that we can expect? I mean, that's almost what we need to start planning for is like doing a big ass grief recovery method. I mean, look. With the world. Grief, I I have been planning grief episodes for five years. I have only gotten through one because it is such a big topic because I have such a hard time. That, that's my albatross right there. That's my story on the map. I will get there eventually. I will do a series on grief and I have it. I even have an outline, literally have an outline for grief episode, but it is so big. It's almost like, where do I even start? It's, it's like you're sitting in a depression and you can't see a way out. When you look around your house and you're like, man, I have so many things to do. And it's so overwhelming. And even though, you know, you could just start with picking up this one thing or cleaning out this one drawer, you could start with one thing, but it is so overwhelming. Um, unfortunately, there's a giant iCloud thing right in the middle of my screen right now. And I don't know what's oh, going sorry. on with that. No, it's mine, not yours. Um, but yeah, so it's distracting. I apologize. I'm closing it. There we go. Um, <laughs> literally, like my that happens screen. to me all the time. So I'm so glad I'm not alone. No, technology. Um, yeah. So what I'm saying is it just grief for me, the grief episodes are that it's so overwhelming that I don't even know where to start. And we don't even recognize the signs and symptoms of grief because we only recognize grief as death. Mm. We don't think about all the other losses that you were just mentioning. And I was just mentioning in the yes and segment, which is all of these other losses. We, we, we haven't even, we don't even remember all the losses we've had during the pandemic. Yes, the toilet paper scare was funny now that we're looking back at it, 
but that was a scarcity of resources. That was terrifying for some people to go to the store and not be able to find basic supplies. But we don't think about that because we were just in it in the moment. Yeah. So yeah, there, there's so many tiny little ticks on that line that you're talking about. Well, that's so interesting because, um, and just, I mean, like to point to the toilet paper in particular, I was at, I, to be totally honest, in the last two and a half years, I have used Instacart. I'm so grateful for it. I'm so excited. It fits my lifestyle perfectly. And so I rarely go into Costco anymore, rarely. Mm -hmm. um, but in the last month, I've been to Costco twice. <laughs> the first time, and this was probably mid-February, mid to end of February, I'm in Costco and, you know, you come around the, come around the corner and there's the stack of toilet paper and paper towels. And it says Kirkland toilet paper, 1799, no limit. And it was just this, like, oh, everything's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Like I, I felt I'm even talking about it. I'm like, oh my God, that sounds so stupid, but it was just, <laughs> this relief that if there's no limit on toilet paper, we're going to be okay again. Yeah. And yeah. So it's like, even, even this toilet paper scare <laughs> that I think many of us got a little gift. I have it here somewhere, that little yes. <laughs> 2020 Christmas ornament with a roll of toilet paper on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it seemed so ridiculous at the time. And, and it has completely, restructured how I purchase toilet paper in my house. Uh -huh. And it gave me so much insight and empathy to my grandmother who had lived through the great depression, yes. who, who was like borderline hoarding, but she hoarded things like toilet paper, paper towels, <laughs> cleaning supplies, bleach, vinegar. And now we know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No why. Um, I, I really, and I know that this wasn't your intention and you're welcome to say, no, let's talk about something else, but I would love to, let's normalize grief a little bit. And you talked about the signs and symptoms. Um, what are those? My very favorite handout is that we give out at our hospice is called uh, <clears throat> How Grief Manifests. That actually is the only episode I've gotten out on grief, which is reviewing exactly that which are physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual signs that we are experiencing grief that we don't think about. So like I said, normal, what we perceive as a normal grief response would be tears or sadness, right? What about loss of appetite? What about feeling like you're going crazy because you can't find your keys? What about anger? What about a renewed belief in spirituality or a retraction of belief in spirituality. All of those things, and there's a whole long, I mean, the list is extensive, but just briefly, like, like every aspect of life, losing weight, gaining weight, less appetite, more appetite, things that are out of the normal for you are very possibly signs of grief. And I think we just need to reframe what loss means, what grief means, what bereavement means, because it really is not just about death. Yeah. Um, let me see if I have that paper. I don't know if I have. I was going to say, I'm just like sitting here processing this going, oh my gosh, like every day for the last. Yes. 
Um, I don't have a printout, but I can pull it up real quick. I mean, it's it's kind of blowing my mind right now. It's <laughs> this is my world. Remember, <laughs> well, I and I talk about death and dying at nauseum every day. Uh, again, to anyone that'll listen, because it needs to be normalized. Yeah, well, and I'm just sitting here really present to. It was two years ago today when, well, three days ago, March 16th, 2020, when so many decisions had to be made and um, our work, our work at, at, at hospice, like completely shifted and changed and has been rewritten time and time and time again. <laughs> <laughs> over the last emails. two years yeah <laughs> oh my goodness sakes I mean I just remember the initial conversations in late February early March that it wasn't any big deal and then oh my gosh it's this huge deal and then oh it's this really big deal and um, just this roller coaster of what we've learned and how long we've been in incident command teams and you know making changes and um mm-hmm. And how much everybody hates change. And it's like, okay, well, it's the only thing that we can rely on is change. Um, and I'm just really present to you as you were talking about some of those those signs of grief of, oh my gosh, I've seen that. I've seen this renewed spirituality or this like turning your back on spirituality or, um, I mean, things that I hadn't thought of before. This, yeah, I, yeah. I have it pulled up here. Hold hold on. Let me read you some of these. Yeah. The like sourdough bread. Fad, oh my, like. I forgot about that. Yes. Um, so, f- <laughs> yes. Uh, so some physical reactions, right? Insomnia, sensitivity to noise, tightness in your chest or throat, nervous energy, susceptibility to illness. Let me think about that. Mental reactions, just difficulty concentrating, nothing seems real, confusion, continually thinking about the loss, fantasizing in lots of different ways, or apathy, which is, I think, probably the one that I feel the most, Uh, and behaviors, you know, um, exhibiting symptoms of the deceased's illness, obsessive activity, changes in sexual activity and being accident prone. Those are just some of the things on the list that I think we really don't think about as normal or common, but they absolutely are. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, um, it's so interesting as you, as you were reading those, I was thinking, my gosh, even as a parent and, and my children are in their late twenties, almost 30. (laughs) Um, I still, I recognize some of those, those symptoms, those signs of, yeah, this is, there's transitions in life that are occurring that are causing grief that we're, um, that little voice in our head is like, oh, come on, you're an adult, suck it up. You can make it through this. Like, we just Uh got to keep pushing ahead. We got to keep doing this. We got to keep doing that. Um, if somebody recognizes that they're grieving, what's the next step? Well, that's different for everyone, but I would suggest first just sitting with it. Um, the adage, the only way out is through, 
cannot be more true. You cannot move through something if you're not recognizing it, if you're stuffing it down, if you're compartmentalizing. You may have to do that in the moment, uh, much like you were talking about emergency responders and healthcare workers having to go through traumas and then deal with it later. Sure, that's a reality of life. But at some point, you're going to have to face that tough emotion. And once you do, it's, it's naming it. It's ownership of it. It's taking power over it. And that doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. It very sucks. And it doesn't mean it's ever going to be over. Grief will never be over. It will always be a part of you like a scar. And sometimes that scar starts tingling. But knowing that it's going to be better at some point. So I would say step one, acknowledge it. Notice it. Acknowledge it. Give yourself space to feel it. And know that as you're going through it, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Reach out if you need to, whether that is friends, family, pets, crisis lines, local hospices have bereavement programs. Do what you got to do to get through it because ultimately we need you here. You're important. You're valued. You're loved, whether you see it or not. You make me cry. <laughs> very compressed. I apologize. <laughs> no, I had to take a second there. Um, and you know, one thing that struck me is that you and I work in this world. And so we really know what the term bereavement means and bereaved. And um, how do you explain that to someone that doesn't know what that word means? Uh, <clears throat> bereavement to me, and I'm sure there's a formal, formal definition out there. Um, is someone going through the grieving process. When you're in a state of bereavement, you are processing through it. Whether you acknowledge it or not, <laughs> you are doing it. Uh, it's going to take you a lot longer if you're not acknowledging it. And so when we say we have bereavement programs, these are people that specialize in grief counseling to support people going through a bereavement. Yeah. Yeah. And it keeps popping into my head, um, you know, for parents who of, of children of all ages, um, so many of so much of what we've just been talking about, I just keep thinking, oh my gosh, I saw that in my kids when they were, you know, this age and this age and this age and this age. And, you know, often you're like, oh my gosh, okay, obviously you have a lot of emotion. Why don't you go and like, hang out in your room for a little bit and like, have some time for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, oh, ew, uh, today, if I was that parent, I would say, oh, it's out, it looks to me like maybe you're experiencing some big emotions and some grief. Uh, let's talk about it. Let's sit with it. And so I guess for all those folks who are having that opportunity right now, um, how do you normalize like having those conversations with, with children, with parents, with siblings who, who are like, I'm not grieving. I'm just mad or I'm not grieving. I just get, I'm, I'm an adult and I can do whatever I want. Or, you know, I'm not grieving. I'm, um, I just hate the world. Like, you know, <laughs> everybody's stupid and, you know, uh, I will first, I would say it's going to be really hard to engage in someone that's defensive in the moment. So I think you're just going to have to 
acknowledge they're feeling that feeling and let that part pass. And it it's okay. It's okay to not address it in that moment. It's okay to go to your room and have some some time to sit in your feelings, um, especially in those teenage years. We all kind of remember that hormonal shift and everything felt extreme. And that's real. Those feelings are real. Um, so I would say first, just acknowledge that it's okay to have feelings. <laughs> the the adage of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is bullshit, frankly. Um, and I'm saying that from someone that served in the military. <laughs> so that that um, I was just having this conversation the other day with uh, someone of the boomer generation, having a hard time understanding uh, younger people's not acceptance, unacceptance, if you will, of um, behaviors that were used to be acceptable. So I would say first, sit with the emotion, try to name the emotion, acknowledge that people have emotions and it's okay. And then education, allowing yourself to be open-minded to other people's experiences. That's really how my worldview changed. Um, I actually wrote some of that down in your question. Where did I put that? Uh, it was under the, <laughs> what didn't I know to ask section. That Great question. <laughs> yeah, that really is think about how have life experiences changed you going into the military, being away from home, away from my home, not my just my home, like my parents, my family, leaving the state, going to a different culture, going to a different country, being around people that are not from where you are, or having your life experience. And then like I was saying with with TikToks now is having this worldwide reach of people's experiences and going to college and learning about things that I might not have been exposed to um, can really change your view of how people go through the world and how people experience it. So getting back to children and allowing them to grieve and have those emotions and be able to process them in a much healthier way than we did, I think successively each generation has done better at that. I think we've still got a long ways to go, but I think for the older generations or, you know, as they're seeing these changes happen, it's harder to accept because when they were raised, it was suck it up, deal with it, figure it out. We just got to get it done. And for the time, that's what needed to happen. Now we're realizing maybe that's not the healthiest way to process emotions. So yeah, education and being open to perspective changes. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, and just being, you know, allowing your children to be who they are and who they need to be. Um, and not at the expense of yourself as, as a parent. And I, I think that can be said for any relationship, the mm -hmm. parent child, but, you know, allowing your parents to be who they are yeah. and not allowing that to impact who you are as a person. Um, and, you know, creating, creating some, some boundaries and boundaries doesn't mean that necessarily that you just like abandon ever seeing anybody ever again and just live in like your cute little house and you don't go anywhere. <laughs> um, but it's also, just knowing what you can accept and what you can't accept. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I almost said yes, but yes. And yes, uh, that also means it's okay to not have those toxic relationships in your life, even if they are blood relations, which before really has not been acceptable. 
that yeah. that was part of that whole conversation I, I had the other day, which was a kind of elder Gen X millennial boomer relationships of the younger person saying, you know, you were abusive to me in my younger life or you were, you're toxic and I'm not, I'm cutting you out of my life. And the older person not understanding that. Mm. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot wrapped into that obviously that's a much longer conversation too all of these are wormholes but <laughs> i know <laughs> uh, <laughs> but understanding that that's okay too it's it's okay to remove yourself from something that's not healthy from for you i wouldn't say that's step one but if you've tried the other steps and they're not willing to change or accept or be loving or even make any kind of effort Sorry, you don't deserve my time. Yeah. You don't yeah, deserve something... to be able to be abusive to me continually. Yeah, that's something um, that's been so uh, interesting to work with in hospice is these perceptions um, often uh, do not want to like label folks, but often the, the folks who are volunteers tend to um, if you're just looking demographically, tend to be older, tend to be from the generation where you saw family regardless of how toxic they were to you. And yeah. if, mm -hmm. in, in particular, if somebody was dying, you went and you saw them. Right. And often I'll hear from volunteers, and it's a variety of age ranges, to be totally frank, saying, oh, you know, the family is, um, uh, they don't see each other, they're, I can't think of the word right now, um, but estranged. we have to get the daughter there estranged. Yes. We have to get the daughter there. She has to come see her dad before he dies and, <laughs> and offering that reframe for folks like, well, if it's not healthy for her, then no, we don't have to have the daughter see her dad before he dies. Um, we can always offer it and it's not Uh, and, and that's probably one of the biggest conversations that I have with volunteers in this work is we aren't going to change people for how they've lived their entire lives at the end of their life. Like we're not going to just like snap our fingers and make it all better. And yeah. it's all going to fall into our normal family life definitions mm -hmm. um, because then we're imposing our perspective of the world onto this family who has a different perspective. Um, yeah. You're right. I mean, These could be total wormholes. <laughs> that's all about social works values is all about self-determination and autonomy and all of that. Um, and yeah, absolutely. I have those conversations with people every day. I have those conversations with uh, facilities and APS, <laughs> you know, adult protective services. Uh, yeah, we, we have families in those positions a lot where they are made to feel guilty or responsible for someone that has been abusive or toxic and maybe even continues to be abusive and toxic. Uh, and yeah, the, the dying person may want to see that person, but they don't have a right to. If the person is willing, if, if they're willing to engage in conversation or discussion or options about that, sure. And some might be but I'm never going to force that on someone or make that, you know, that's, 
maybe sitting with my own moral distress about a situation, but it's not, it doesn't have to be theirs. Yeah. Um, and it's just like resonating for me when you're talking about this, um, you know, this person who's abusive and toxic and, and so much of the other work that you and I do together is having this conversation around, huh, we used to say, what's the matter with that person? They're so abusive. They're so toxic. Like nobody can be around them. And now we're recognizing this, jumping back to earlier conversation, this like history, this lifeline of trauma that's been experienced uh-huh. and shifting that from what happened to this person or, you know, what's wrong with this person to what happened to this person uh-huh. and assuming that this abusive, toxic person has experienced trauma uh-huh. and has had, um, is it the, because so many people, I mean, everybody, like we're, what we're making the assumption that every human walking the planet has, if they can walk, they've experienced a trauma. <laughs> well, if anybody um, lived through the pandemic, we did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, even those little babies that were born, you know, I mean, oh my gosh. Um, that's a whole nother, sorry. If my brain just went down like five different conversations, uh, let me pause for a moment, uh, get back to the original point. Um, but people process traumas in such different ways. And so some people do, it comes out in behaviors that are abusive and in language that is toxic. Um, so, I mean, even that person who is abusive and toxic to certain people in their lives and maybe even abusive and toxic to everybody in their lives. Yes. That's so much of this work that we do as well as this like compassion and dignity and just learning that, oh, you've had massive things happen to you that you don't know how to process. Uh So here's how we're going to support you. We're going to pile up extra compassion. We're going to pile up extra dignity. We're going to put on extra layers of our armor so that your toxicity doesn't reach us. Um, and I'm not out in the field doing that, but what do you, and, uh, maybe what do you see as the possibility in that conversation? <laughs> Cause I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm almost out of time. <laughs> but I have 20 more questions to ask. <laughs> uh, I mean, we can always do a part two, um, or 10 part two. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what do I see the possibility? So I would say number one, and I've had this conversation recently as well with families, uh, exactly what you're saying. People don't just automatically behave this way. Very likely it was the way they were raised or they experienced trauma or whatnot, and they are reacting in the only way they know how. That also does not give them permission to continue the cycle of abuse. Uh, you, We do what we can. We offer compassion. We offer support and and on our end it's professional support we also offer emotional support to that circle of support that's trying to support this toxic person or person that's displaying toxic traits i should say uh coming at it or or understanding that it's likely a trauma response may lessen the blow of the abuse so that's something that we can do to mitigate the effects of it but you're right. We're, we're likely, if this is an end of life situation or even an older adult situation, they are likely not going to change. So what can you do to protect yourself if, and when you choose to engage with them? Yeah. And then again, seek support, just like grief, just like bereavement. Yeah. Well, and just normalizing that, um, you know, I'm 
I've got some of this going on in my own life. And it's really easy to talk about to other people and offer that. And yet when you're in it, it's mm-hmm. such a shock to your system when you have not been in a toxic environment for a, a really long time, which, you know, the pandemic has also offered us that opportunity that like, oh, going there every week was super not healthy for me. And so it's kind of been nice to not go. And now, now as restrictions are easing and the expectations are, oh, we need to do this again and we need to be there. And yeah, they're, they treat us poorly and they're our family. So we still need to show up. Um, and that's, that's the question, right? Need. Do we need to? to? No, I am not finding the need to. Are, are they willing to engage in changing their own behavior so that we can still engage? I mean, there are, again, living in possibility, being in possibility. Is it possible to change your relationship or dynamics? Depends on the other person in that instance, but you can only control you. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, and I really appreciate that because we often feel like we uh, have no choice in this matter, kind of back to that. Um, we're feeling very disempowered by this. And so we go and do things that we don't really want to do because we feel it's the expectation yet to step into our own power and say, this is what I need. And what I need is I can come for 15 minutes, but if I hear this or I hear this, then I will be leaving, uh, you know, setting those expectations and just being really clear and following through, (laughs) following through on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and supporting the other people to do the same. Um, yeah, those are those are great examples. And you know, if you set an expectation that you know I will come over, but if you, for example, start talking about politics, I am going to leave. When you leave, it doesn't have to be a big old huff and you slam the door on the way out. It can simply be, okay, good to see you. Set your stuff down, pick your coat up, and walk out the door gently. It doesn't have to be a production. <laughs> But you are setting the boundary so that they know that they can't push past that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, it does not have to be a production and so much we want to be right back, like circling all the way back to the beginning. (laughs) We want to be right. And we want to, um, we want to prove our point. (laughs) Yeah. Righteous indignation. Exactly. We want to prove our point. And we're the better person and blah, 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 blah. And if we just were in it for saying, this is what I need and I can't accept anything less than this. And you're my family member and I respect and honor your position in the family. And I cannot, I can't, I can't continue to be here. This is not supportive of me mm-hmm. or my own well-being or my own mental health or but you're right. It doesn't have to be a production. It's just like, oh my gosh, look, it's a uh, freckle past a hair. I got to go. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I haven't heard that one in a while, but yes. <laughs> it's uh, 10 minutes past my bedtime. Uh, it's only 936 in the morning. Yep. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, Hallie. Um, yeah. What else, what else does being impossibility mean to you? Oh, so yeah, again, all of these are rabbit holes we could talk about for hours, but uh, I wrote down some thoughts for that question. I think it means that your current reality 
doesn't mean that you have to stay stagnant. That you hold the power to contribute to your own circumstance. And that even if it's by how you look at or interact with the world and what lens you see it through, um, that can change. That, that there are ways to change your reality, even if it's just how you're looking at it through a perspective can change the mood that you're in, even if you're in the same circumstance. In hospice, it's often when people are thinking about end of life, they're thinking about it being the loss of hope. And that's just not true. You know, we're able to hold hope and reality in the same hand. And we, we teach that a lot to our patients and families. So in the end, to me, being impossibility means hope. I love that. I love that. Um, and for all those people that want to chat with you, that want to process the loss of their pet, <laughs> I heard your your podcast, Someday We'll All Be Dead. Where else, where else can people find you? I am on Twitter at SomedayDeadPC, as in podcast. You could email me at SomedayDeadPC at gmail.com. You can find me on TikTok at Hospice Hallie, <laughs> H-A-L-L-E-Y. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm around. I'm easy to find. I'm on Facebook. I'm everywhere. So. Oh me. my gosh. We will find you. I will find you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here today for all these great conversations. And we will definitely have to have a part two. Um, <laughs> and I just am so grateful that we've had this time this morning. Thank you. Likewise. I appreciate you. All right, that wraps up this episode. Please go check out Aaron's podcast, Being in Possibility, and we will see you next time. Until then, remember to live because someday we'll all be dead. <laughs>